Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. All of you here today, it's a blessing to have you at church, and today we get to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that amazing? I want to read Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, and then want to pray as we get started. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. God, we ask this morning that you would... uh, Help us to remember the story that maybe we've heard a number of times. Would it just become alive for us today? And would that power that rose Jesus from the dead infuse our bones as we seek to understand and know and trust in you more? We give this time to you. Amen. A few years ago, I had the chance to sit down with another pastor in Uptown, but at this church that he was the pastor of, they had very different beliefs than our church at Missio Day. That was fine. I thought we were going to have some coffee and we we're going to have a nice time together. Um, and it didn't go as I expected. Uh, I sat down with him and it turned into this other pastor trying to deconstruct my faith for me. It was as if he didn't think I had thought of some of the counter-arguments to Christianity or quite honestly just thought I was an idiot. Either way, the whole time we were there, I felt a little bit defensive, trying to show compassion and conviction for two hours to someone who very much liked, disliked whatever version of Christianity that he thought I believed in. See, he did not believe in the resurrection, At one point, he got so frustrated with me, he said something to the effect of, ugh, it doesn't even matter if the resurrection is true, if God isn't good. And the God that you believe in, this is how he started, and again, I don't know what he thought I believed in. (laughs) It didn't seem like he was listening to me at all. He just had something he wanted to share. He said, and the God that you believe in, I'm better I'm a better person than that. A lot of things were running through my mind as he said that. I thought that was a pretty arrogant statement by someone. (laughs) But then the line that stuck out to me initially was when he said, it doesn't matter if the resurrection 
is true. And that was astonishing to me, taken by itself, because Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, we should be pitied among all people. If Christ has not been raised, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. My second thought was, if God is God, if God is real, then God can sort of be whatever God wants to be. <laughs> we don't get to dictate to God uh, what's right and good and true necessarily, right? And so that was, I thought, another mistake of his line of argument. But I was struck by his statement to say, the resurrection doesn't matter if God isn't good. And I think as we consider Jesus, uh, times are changing a little bit. It certainly matters if the resurrection actually happened or not for our Christian faith. I mean, Paul makes it very abundantly clear that it matters. But people are just as concerned about whether or not Christianity and Jesus and the God of the scriptures and the God of this world that we claim is good. And we have to consider the fact that many people don't care as much about whether or not it's true. They care more about whether or not it's good. So the title of my sermon today is It's True and It's Good. And I want to briefly, we could go into these sections for a very long time. But I want to start with It's True and then I want to move on to It's Good. I told the first service I'm not great at analogies um, so, or like these type of illustrations. So just bear with me, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. I want you to imagine uh, that the resurrection is a freezer. Okay? The resurrection is a freezer. And I want you to imagine that Christianity is ice cream. Maybe your favorite ice cream is chocolate chip cookie dough. Uh, my wife, Sarah, she likes, eat, uh, I don't remember the, the brand, but it's the, the Tonight Dough. It has like brownies and chocolate chip cookie dough, vanilla and chocolate ice cream. That's where it's at. It's very good. Uh, ben and Jerry's, that's the type of ice cream. But that's expensive. I, whenever I get it, I feel like I got ripped off a little bit. Anyways, imagine Christianity is ice cream and re the resurrection is the freezer. Now, without the freezer, what happens to the ice cream? It melts, right? It no longer is ice cream. It's just cream, right? It's just, it's soup. Now, there's some good things in there. I mean, the Tonight Dough has brownies and it has cookie dough that you could pick out. It tastes pretty good. But it fails in comparison to real ice cream, right? It's no longer ice cream. It's something entirely different. And I want to, to say this because this is how the New Testament postures the resurrection, is that it is the foundational event of Christianity, See, the foundation of the Christian faith is not the scriptures. It's not you having some sort of faith, but it's an event, an extraordinary event with profound implications. The foundation of faith is not the teachings of Jesus, although those are wildly important. It's not loving your enemies. It's not the, the story of the Good Samaritan. It is the resurrection. 
And I want us to recognize, and I think that this passage in Mark and the other Gospels show this perfectly clear when it talks about the resurrection and the, or the death of Jesus. It is clear that the disciples and those that were following Jesus at the time when Jesus died lost hope. They had given up. See, without the resurrection... After Jesus died, there was no Christianity because there was no Christ. Christ means Messiah. It means that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. There were no believers. No one was doing anything but mourning the death and loss of someone that they thought was the Messiah, but was just their friend or misled or whatever. Everything was over. If Jesus couldn't keep himself alive, what was the point of getting, uh, getting a movement going, right? Jesus clearly wasn't who he claimed to be. So his teaching was not the driving force of this movement of Christianity. In fact, none of his teachings would have been written down. Like the New Testament is, is there, and it's only the result of the disciples' belief in the resurrected Jesus. See, Jesus said all sorts of interesting things in his life. And people stuck with him, mainly disciples, because they thought he was the Messiah. But even in John 6, we see Jesus talking and he says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And people spoke up and they said, we saw, we know your mother. We know your father. What do you mean you came down from heaven? And a bunch of people were so offended by what Jesus was saying that they left. It was so offensive what he was saying. And Jesus goes to Peter and the other disciples and he says, uh, are you going to leave too? And Peter, as he always does, speaks up first and he says uh, something very wonderful uh, and powerful. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, the crowds loved Jesus' teaching because he spoke with authority, but when he started saying certain things, they believed it was blasphemy. The religious leaders were telling them, this is blasphemy. And so only some of the disciples stuck with Jesus because they said, well, maybe he really is the Messiah. Really, maybe he really is the Holy One sent from God. Maybe he really is the King that is to come. So we're going to stick this out. They followed Jesus, not just because he was a good teacher, but because they believed and they hoped and they longed for a Messiah. And perhaps he was the one. But now that he is dead and he's buried, they were clearly wrong. Because the things that Jesus claimed they believed couldn't be a reality if he was crucified. And everything in the narrative tells us that they believed that nothing was going to change. Mary and Mary Magdalene and Simone, they all went to the tomb expecting Jesus to be there, expecting for the stone to be rolled in front of it, expecting to treat Jesus' body like they did as a custom during their time period. But something happened. Something happened that changed 
everything. And I love the, the gospel of Mark, the way that it's put in the, in the passage. It says, the descript, they described the women after meeting this strange man in a white robe and the tomb uh, stone being rolled away and Jesus' body being gone. This is how they described the women. They were trembling and bewildered. They were afraid. They fled from the tomb and they didn't say anything to anybody except for the people that they thought they could trust, which were the disciples, right? And they told them. What's fascinating is the Bible, the scriptures, and Mark in particular here, documents their own disbelief. Isn't that interesting? That the Bible documents their disbelief in the resurrection. Even though the person said it, even though the tomb was empty, their first reaction wasn't, oh yeah, Jesus said that this whole time. I forgot about that. I don't know if they weren't paying attention or they didn't understand or they just, they had never seen anybody raised from the dead like after crucifixion like this. That, that it didn't just like trigger in their mind, oh yeah, no, they were afraid. They disbelieved. They, they didn't know. They were unsettled. They ran away in fear. The second thing that the Bible does is it doesn't, and, and this is why I, I lean on it being a true narrative of what actually took place that day, is that they didn't pick the right witnesses to see the tomb first. I mean, they put the worst people as the first witnesses. Like, in our context, in our culture, we're totally fine with Mary and Mary going there and seeing this first. That's great. Like, we, we accept their testimony. Uh, why would they not? But in the first century, in the, the decades and centuries to come, one of the biggest stumbling blocks to faith in the resurrection was the fact that women were the first ones to see it because their testimony didn't stand up. But the Bible records it as it happened. Not as something that would have made it more believable. Another one of the gospel messages, Jesus is meeting with the disciples after his resurrection, and he says, you are now all witnesses to this thing. And they did. They were witnesses. The resurrection took a bunch of scared, normal, everyday, ragamuffin people and changed and made them into world changers. What could have done that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the writers of the Gospels, James, Peter, Paul, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, these people that were, many of them, on the lower rungs of society, not respected, not admired, not, not believable, became the witnesses that went across the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And I just want to highlight a couple of them that just astound me to this day. And, and the reason, some of the reasons, there's many reasons, and we could talk about the resurrection for a very long time. But I, I was thinking about James and Mary this week. James, the mother of, or James, James, the brother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both come and worship Jesus. Think about that. I'm not a mother, but I am a father. It would take a whole lot for me to worship my kid. It would take a resurrection from the dead. Uh, that is the truth, right? And my, my siblings, it'd take even more. 
What would have taken for James to worship his brother? And James didn't just worship his brother. He was known for having knees that were so callous they called them like camel knees, as it's translated. And it's because he spent so much time in prayer to his brother. What could that have been apart from the resurrection? James was standing on top of the temple. This is how it is believed that he was, he was killed. Is they said, recant. Recant your, your, your faith in Jesus. Say it didn't, didn't happen. And he was tossed off of the temple mount. Because he would not recant. Think about Paul. Paul, this devout Jew, has his whole life laid out in front of him. He has power, his privilege. He's a Roman citizen. He's a Jewish citizen. He's in line to be one of the next great teachers of Israel and the faith. We, we think of a Pharisee as a negative thing. In that time period, it was well-respected, one of the highest honors you could possibly be, and he was one of those so he was going to lose his profession. He was going to lose his respect. All in order to be poor, imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten, and ultimately killed for his faith in Jesus. Many people believe that Paul was married and his wife and family abandoned him when he turned to Jesus. This was costly. And why would anybody do this? Why would anybody Take on that cost apart from believing in their resurrected Jesus. Peter, think about Peter. Think about his story. He was the first one to believe. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, that's right. I'm gonna, and on you, I'm gonna build my church. You're the rock. And we see the rock denying Jesus. And then a teenage girl around a fire outside of Jesus's uh, court hearing says, yeah, I knew, I, I've seen you with him. And he says, I swear, I've never believed. I don't even know who you're talking about. That's how much the cross and, or Jesus' detainment meant to him. This is how quickly Peter abandoned. So he believed, then he became an unbeliever and ran away. Then he said he never believed. And then after the resurrection, he believes again. He wrote two letters in the, into the, what we have as a new, the collection of letters and, and um, gospel narratives that make up the New Testament. And he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when you say Christianity is, uh, you know, matters up, up, you know, apart from the resurrection, I just don't know if you'd have too many people that agreed with you that are the early disciples. And if you're going to deny the resurrection, you have to, to some degree, dismiss the testimony of all of these people, the writers of the New Testament, that you just do not believe their witness. They're saying that these men and you're saying that these men and women who did nothing that I can tell in their whole lives that was recorded but love people, heal people, give good news to people, were actually liars, manipulators, power hungry. 
That the 500 people that Paul claims had seen the resurrected Jesus and that you could go ask them about it, not one of them backed down from their, their faith in Jesus and, their, and the resurrection. That this, that this was just all an elaborate plan to get themselves persecuted and killed instead of living a normal life. You're saying that these women that, that went to the tomb that was empty are liars and, and manipulators. And apart from the resurrection, I don't know how these terrified betrayers who ran away, these simple men and women, most of them not educated at all, found a way to write down all that Jesus said and did, became courageous, gave up their lives without something as cataclysmic and significant and foundational as the resurrection. So I believe that it's true. But the next question is, 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 is it good? Is God good? Is Jesus in the story of the scriptures, is, is, is it good? Is it good news? And that's a long conversation. <laughs> it requires a lot of uh, discussion, I, but a couple things that of note just from this narrative today. Well, one from this narrative and one that's kind of uh, a bit uh, broader. First, I want you to see the, the people of the kingdom of God, the people that were drawn to Jesus, the people that followed Jesus. The first person that we find named in this passage is Mary Magdalene. Does anybody know the story of Mary Magdalene? Does anyone remember? Mary, not the mother of Jesus Mary, the other Mary in this passage, is, um, she is the one that's said to have seven demons that Jesus set her free from. Now, some people today deny demon possession, all those things. All that we can say for sure, right? I, I believe that the, in the demonic, and certainly this was something that took place, it happens all around the world, even to this day. But regardless of that fact, this woman had all sorts of issues. People perceived her to be outside of her mind. She was outcasted, she was dismissed. And don't you find it fascinating she's the one, she's the first witness. That she's the one, the mouthpiece that God would choose to use to, de to declare and to proclaim the resurrection. The other person along with, well, I don't know, we don't know as much about Salome, but we know about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we believe is, the, you know, the mother of James listed in this passage. And I think about the, the, the first message of Jesus coming goes to Mary, doesn't it? And I think about who Mary was and who this good news came to her. So the revelation of the Messiah came in the world through a poor peasant teenager in a small rural town of an oppressed people in the Middle East. So Jesus announced his coming to a brown Poor, scandalous start. He entered into the world, says that he, he was ugly, right? That's what the Bible says. Nothing would draw us to him. To a poor family of an oppressed people 
and ends up fleeing as a refugee to a foreign land to escape the grasp of a wretched and bloodthirsty king. And I'm just convinced that these two people are supposed to give us a picture this morning of the people of the kingdom of God. All the people that are dismissed and mocked and rejected by society are all the ones that are coming to Jesus, putting their faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus with their lives. And I'm just convinced that the people of the kingdom, the, the one whose testimonies would never have stood up in the court of law because of their gender or because of their, their mental state, is exactly who Jesus wanted to be the first proclaimer, the first witness of his good news. Esau Macaulay wrote in an article this week for the New York Times, he says, Christians at their best are fools who dare to believe in God's power to call dead things to life. So that's the people of the kingdom. What's the nature of the kingdom? I believe that the cross and all of Lent we've been talking about this is really flipping the narrative of what we've often perceived God to be like. Of what the world perceives religion to be. Jesus really flips that narrative up, down, upside down and I believe that this is the key. This is what it really means when we say this is like the nature of the kingdom of God. That because Jesus didn't come to tell us what we need to do in order to get to God but to show us what God would do to get to us. That's what, the king, that's what the cross reveals. What God would do to get to us. What amounts, what lengths, what depth of love to save us, to redeem us, to accept us and bring us into God's family so that we can be sons and daughters. Uh, if some of you know me well, some of you don't. Um, most weeks you'll see my kids running around and you'll figure out pretty quick that they're not my biological children. They have different skin color than I do. And they're, adop they're both adopted. And my younger uh, daughter, or I have one daughter, my, my daughter, who's younger than my son, uh, she's, uh, she was adopted into our family when she was almost three years old. And um, you can imagine when she came into our house uh, that she was very afraid. Um, she was particularly afraid of me. So she loved Sarah right away. And she loved Maze, my son. And she would hang out with them and give them hugs and, and kind of in, in, embrace them and really was happy to be around them. And then she'd see me and she'd literally turn the other way and run. And it was like this for weeks and it was hard, right? Because here you are, you, you, I mean, we adopted this girl into our family and I mean, I just loved her. And all I wanted to do is just hug her and be her dad and like be part of like this whole thing, right? I mean, it's just like the, like the deepest longing of my heart to do this. And there are like these hints and moments where it started to change. Uh, one of the ways we did it was if I was in the other room, Sarah, she loved, Sarah, Sunny always loves to help out. So Sunny, Sarah would give her, um, hey, like, here's an apple. Go take this to your dad. So she'd run into the other room and she'd give the apple. And I'd be like, thank you so much. And then she'd just run away as fast as she could. But she was getting used to me, right? She's getting comfortable. 
I remember one time after she fell asleep on the couch and um, I was the only one in the room and I was like, okay, I'm gonna position myself as her dad that when she wakes up, she can't go to Sarah. She can't go to Maze. I'm the only one in the room, right? And kids love to be held after they wake up from a nap. I thought, this is perfect. I'll be there. And so she did. Like she woke up from a nap and you could tell she looked all around. She's like, is anybody else in the room? No. So she kind of like cuddled up next to me for like 30 seconds, and then that was it. Eventually, uh, there was a day where Maze and Sarah was, were gone, and so I was going to, this is about a month in, things had started to grow and develop in our relationship. We were getting closer and closer, and Sandy was so smart, and she's like, a, she loves to be like an antagonist, right? So it's just the two of us sitting at the kitchen table and we used to have these windows that would open up in our, where we lived before and you could see the neighbors and then like going up and down into their house from the side. Does that make sense? You know how it works in Chicago. People have stairways up to their apartments or their condos or whatever they're, they're living in. And they were, the people were going up and she goes, she looks right at me and she says, Senny lives there. And I was like, and I thought, well, that's mean, you know, like, what do you mean you live there? And I just, and then I realized that she's joking. And I said, no, Sunny lives here with her dad. You live here with me. And she just busted out laughing. She thought it was the funniest thing ever. And so she just said it. And she was saying it over and over and over. Like a hundred times she said the same story, the same thing. I live there. And I'd say, no, you live here with me. And she'd cackle up. And every second she's getting closer, right? And she's cuddling, she's holding. And it's just, what I, what the image I'm trying to get across is not just how awesome my daughter is. And that, that's a cool, cool story, right? But I, I just believe that the nature of the kingdom is a father, right? God the father that would do anything for his kids. And no matter what situation they're in, no matter what their background is, no matter how, um, challenging your life has been, no matter what's happened to you or what you've done, is this father that just cannot wait for you to come into the family. And your whole life is growing closer and closer to this person that you didn't know before, but that loves you deeply, accepts you for who you are, and welcomes you into the family. And so there's this ongoing, growing trust and, 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 and that, that God is good that God is true, that this is new reality, that things aren't going to go back to the way that they were before, but that this is my new reality, this is my new life, this is my new family. And that's really what resurrection is all about. It's about being set free from sin, being set free from death, being set free from Satan, and stepping into a new life in a new family that loves you deeply. That's the story. And I think it's good. I think it's such good news. It's worth giving up our whole lives for. It's worth counting the cost as <laughs> Peter and Paul, who are willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus, who for our sake Though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. That Jesus didn't come down to tell us what we needed to do in order to get to God, but to show us what God would do to get to us.
So I wanna invite you, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, that, that God wants to adopt you into his family. That's what the resurrection declares. And so what that looks like is a simple thing. It's just, you don't have to say a perfect prayer. I always, always told you you have to pray a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. Really, all you have to do is say, I wanna follow you, God, with my whole heart and my whole life and with all that I am. I want to be part of your family. I want to be, part, like, I want to be redeemed. I want to be saved giving your life to Jesus. So I invite you to do that today. You don't need me to do that, though I'd be happy to pray for you. You don't need anyone else in this room in order to do that, though I'm sure any, almost anybody in this room would be happy to walk you through that more in depth now and after the service. But in the meantime, I, I, want, you, I want to stand and I want us to, to worship Jesus like Mary and like James and like all the people that thought that everything had ended at the death of Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, they were convinced that Jesus is Lord. They were convinced that the resurrection changed everything. Amen? So let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, we exalt you, and we praise you, and we thank you for your love. We thank you that you've adopted us into your family. We thank you that though we may have had the worst life so far, that maybe um, we've had horrible things done to us, we've done horrible things, that we've had just a rough go, even in the last few weeks that we're just down and out, that you are there, that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you revealed at the cross and at the resurrection the extent of what you would do for us to show us your love and to invite us into your family. And so today we receive that opportunity once again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.